Hey friends, Nels here. Thanks for tuning in to the Journey Church Podcast. Today we're in a message series called Parables, where we're looking at how Jesus used small stories to teach big ideas. Let's tune in to see how these parables can impact our lives. Hi again. I promised I'd be back, and I'm here. Uh, Lots of you know, maybe some of you don't, that uh, Journey Church is a part of a denomination. And uh, this gentleman here, his name is Vern Streeter. He's a good friend of mine. Known each other for a bunch of years. He is the lead pastor of our mama church. So what's cool about that is that um, none of us, I wouldn't be here, none of you would be in this room right now. There probably wouldn't be a room if Vern, uh, a while back, uh, didn't have the vision and uh, kind of the guts to say, hey, we're going to plant a church in Bozeman. So I don't want to say too much more about that because Vern knows the story better than I. And uh, I just want you to give him a huge journey uh, welcome, Vern Streeter. Thanks, everybody. everybody. Okay. Yep. Make it. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's great to uh, be together uh, with you. It's been nine or ten years or something like that. Last time I was here was um, we were in, in Heritage, you know, and Obviously, that sermon didn't go very well because it took a decade to get invited back. Uh, let me give you, a, uh, John asked me to just tell you a little bit of the journey Genesis, and uh, the way that happened is that I was a youth pastor in Billings for the decade of the 90s, and in the early 90s, I began noticing a troubling trend, and that is that kids would graduate from our youth group at our church in Billings, and they'd go to college, and then they'd come home on break, and I talked to them like, hey, how's it going with the Lord? And they're like, who's the Lord? <laughs> oh, what? Uh, what church are you going to? Church? I'm not going to church. I'm like, what's going on? I mean, these, these were neat kids that followed the Lord in high school, you know, and then they're just blowing their faith when they get to college. And I was getting angry about that, righteously indignant. And uh, one of the consistent threads through all of that is it was always kids who went to Bozeman, never to Missoula. But just a Bozeman, the kids who went to Missoula, you know, they went into missions and stuff. But they... Okay, full disclosure, I'm a Grizz, just so you know. So, yeah, okay, you and I just lost credibility in the whole room. But actually, there's some irony to that. I didn't follow Jesus when I was at the U, and um, I actually met the Lord in Bozeman. <laughs> so, up Cottonwood, and uh, so I had... It's because God is not in Missoula. He's in Bozeman. I had to come here to find him. So at any rate, well, a lot of kids from Billings come to Bozeman, you know, for school. And so early 90s, I'm going, how come, how come there's not, there's no criticism of anybody else, but I'm going, how come these, there's not churches that are just reaching out to these college kids, man? So if we're going to start a church, man, we got to start it in Bozeman. So I, I get all fired up about this. Well, then I start Harvest Church in 2000, and we wrote it into our kind of covenant, our values as we started a church that we would launch a church within five years of our launch. And the location would be Bozeman. And so Brian was on my staff when I was a youth pastor, and then he came with me and was executive pastor at Harvest, and so he sat under all that and kind of caught the vision for it, and God called him to start Journey Church. And uh, one of the things that not a lot of people know that's always been a really fun thing for me is that this five years from launch deal, like we, we just put that out there as sort of a faith step that God would let us plant a church in Bozeman five years from launch. And 
you guys planted actually 12 hours inside of that. In other words, we started the first weekend of October 2000. You started first weekend of October 2005. But we started with a Sunday night, Sunday morning service. You guys started with a Saturday night service. So we, we just got it, snuck it in. Five years, four years, 364 days, and 12 hours. So it's kind of the genesis of how Journey Church got here. And I'm kind of out of a, what Bill Hybels would call a holy discontent. And so thanks for being a church that college students like to come to. And you've had a significant impact on hundreds and hundreds of young people. And please don't lose that. Please keep it up. Thank you. Um, I speak of that personally because I've had a daughter um, at Montana State. Man, that was tough on the family. Uh, so she was here and a part of this church, so it's really good. A uh, little sketchy, even me being here today. Um, I'm four, four weeks post-op. Uh, I had a three-level fusion in my neck. Uh, four weeks ago, and uh, so I wear this dumb collar, you know, but my surgeon said I could take it off for a sermon as long as I preached in under 30 minutes, so I got to get going here, and uh, so we scheduled this months before that that surgery got scheduled. I told John it's going to be a little sketchy, man, but let's give it a shot, so if I pile up and can't get through it, John's listened to this sermon twice. He should be able to finish it just fine, so... The series that you guys are in are, is on the parables, so they asked me to speak on a parable, said I could speak on whichever parable I wanted, it's just that everybody already took all the good parables, <laughs> and so I thought, okay, uh, we're going to talk about the parables. Um, I'd like to talk about one of the parables that actually doesn't make the list of most people's lists of parables. This one just gets overlooked, and one of the reasons is it's really obscure, it's actually rather troubling when you read it, and it's one verse long. It's just one verse parable. It's in Matthew chapter 15. If you get a Bible, we'll be in Matthew 15. I'm indebted to a scholar by the name of Ken Bailey who helped me understand this passage because I did not understand it for years. And I think I'm getting a pretty good handle on it now. My daughter, Emily, uh, graduated from Montana State in December, and she's a nurse now. Very proud of my daughter, but when she was three years old, Ramey and I were in the kitchen getting dinner. She comes walking up the stairs and says, she's three, what the hell's for dinner? <laughs> I looked at my wife and I said, Ramey, you have got to watch your language around the children. They're picking up some bad habits here. Now, we don't know where she came up with that. Of course, we were stunned, you know, but picked it up somewhere. She's three. First time I uttered a racial slur, I was five or six years old. It's a little poem. I said this word. My mom goes, mm -mm. we don't talk like that. We don't use that word. I picked it up somewhere. Didn't even really know what it meant. All kind of products of our environment, aren't we? product of our sort of upbringing and all these variety of influences. In my lifetime, I've, we've seen the advent of a new terminology, and that is N-word. That's, that's kind of new, just a few decades old. 
That's good, that's good advancement. Uh, because of all that that word represents, all of the injustice and horror and racism related to that word, it's good. Tone it down. Careful of the way we speak. Regardless of your politics, you had to be a little bit proud of your country eight years ago when we elected an African-American president. It's like, hey, progress. Here's the irony. Study after study, poll after poll, indicates that race relations in America are worse than they were 10 years ago. What's going on, man? Of course, it's rampant. It's worldwide. You see it in the Olympics. You just saw it a couple of days ago. Judo match between an athlete from Israel and one from Egypt. Israeli beats the Egyptian. Egyptian would not do the customary bow or handshake. That was purely racist. And it's everywhere. It's worse. And if you think it's bad today, it's nothing like it was in Jesus' day. Jesus' day, racism was brutal and rampant, defined the Middle East. Jesus grew up a Jewish man, influenced by all kinds of racism around him. So question, was Jesus a racist? My, my church uh, does the exact same thing that you guys do when I ask questions like that. They just look at me because they know that it might be a trick question. <laughs> And so nobody's willing to commit. Was Jesus a racist? Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus didn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Women came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's a racist statement from Jesus. A mom asks for help. Jesus first ignores her and then excludes her and then he utters a religious and ethnocentric assertion and then he publicly, in front of everybody, insults her with a racial slur. Hence, we have here at first blush one of the most troubling and embarrassing passage of scripture in all the Bible about Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, uh, this might be one of the reasons you'd point to, like that. I don't want to follow somebody who talks to people like that. This is a passage that's often ignored, and you probably haven't heard a sermon on it because we we have trouble talking about this one because it's so easily misunderstood, because Jesus appears very dismissive and intolerant and misogynistic and racist, frankly, which is incongruent with what you understand about his character, what the New Testament teaches about him. We know Jesus to be loving and wise and compassionate, so he's got to be up to something here, and he is. Summarize it in your big idea that Jesus shows his intentional compassion and concern by giving a foreign woman an exam, but giving his disciples an education. So 
Let's go back into the text now. We'll unpack it a little bit. I'm going to show you these three tests that he gives this woman as a part of this larger exam. But you can see the subversive work that he's doing emphatically to his disciples. So let's get to work. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So this is a non-Jewish region. This is a Gentile region. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity. A Canaanite is a pagan woman. Definitely not a friend of the Jews. But she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So she uses some terminology that's actually surprising in the story because she knows a little bit about Jesus. Somebody must have exposed her to some Judaism or something because she understands that Jesus is the son of God, the son of David, the Messiah. She at least is hinting at that when she uses that terminology. So she's then believing that this Jesus can do what she asks him to do, which is to heal her daughter. And she is crying out. The verb tense there indicates an ongoing crying out. So she is repeatedly keeping on crying out, keeps on begging. It's ongoing. It's kind of like nagging. And so you have this foreign woman from a repulsive religious heritage with a demon-possessed daughter, probably demon-possessed because of the activity of the mother, who now seems to be apparently believing in Jesus, and yet she is unclean and definitely disqualified to approach a rabbi. She approaches him and begs him repeatedly and loudly, this is the Middle East, to have mercy. And what does Jesus do? Verse 23, he did not answer a word. How rude. He does nothing, says nothing, just silence. What is this? Is this indifference? Is it rejection? Now keep in mind now, Jesus is, he's dealing with, kind of testing this woman, but educating his disciples. So he's testing her. Now, a test is not a put down. A test is not an insult. A test is a teacher. You understand that about tests. Jesus, you could even think, is actually complimenting her by giving her this tough test in the way that a coach honors an athlete when the coach schedules tough competition. So we're in the midst of the Olympics right now, and everybody that's in the Olympics has been pushed by their coach, and the coach is always looking for the very best competition for their athletes because he wants to he or she wants to get the best out of them. That's what Jesus is doing with this girl. He's complimenting her by giving her these difficult tests. Now, the first test is what we're simply going to call silence and indifference. Silence and indifference. I think Jesus is pretending rejection. I think he's pretending his air of superiority, this sense of, I don't even notice you. But it's also what would be expected of Jesus. This would be seen as totally appropriate because a rabbi is not going to talk to a woman in public, let alone a Gentile woman, let alone a Gentile woman with a demon in her house. And so the disciples who are watching all of this unfold are very comfortable with Jesus's culturally conditioned treatment of this woman. Jesus is testing her with his silence, but she's not going to accept the perceived rejection because she's passionate about what she wants to see happen, which is 
the most important thing to her is that her daughter would be healed. So she just stays at it and she keeps on begging. She's essentially nagging and she's passing test number one, but her nagging and her wailing and her begging is too much for the disciples, which is now going to bring us to test number two, verse 23. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying after us. So Jesus had taken his disciples into the region of Tyre and Sidon for some R&R. These guys had actually been going hard doing some good ministry. They needed some respite, some rest. And so he takes them there kind of to Vegas, you know, to get some rest. (laughs) And so they're there to kind of unwind a bit. And all of this clatter, all this carrying on, all this begging and wailing is getting to their nerves. And so the disciples just want Jesus to get rid of her. So Jesus responds to her and also to his disciples, because he's, he's working both right now. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So what Jesus is doing is saying, lady, I wasn't here, sent here for you. I'm just here for these guys, the Jews. To which the disciples would go, yeah. He ain't here for you, Canaanite crazy. So, you know, off you go. So she's facing a second test now, which we're going to call cultural religious exclusivity. Cultural religious exclusivity. This is what the disciples wanted. This is what they actually even expected to hear. And what we've got here now is Jesus in his brilliance is just doing a classic setup He's kind of digging a hole that the disciples are falling into. They're about to get an an education because Jesus knew about their baggage. See, their prejudices, their, their racism in some ways isn't their fault. I mean, it was what they grew up in. They picked it up from their parents. They picked it up from their culture. They picked it up from their synagogue teachers. So they kind of just live in this. Jesus is going, that's no excuse. And he's very bothered by his disciples' attitudes towards women and towards Gentiles, non-Jews, towards this Canaanite crazy lady. Now, simultaneous to this, the woman's self-sacrificing love for her daughter and her ongoing suffering and her humiliating begging and her endurance under the testing and her confidence in Jesus is impressing Jesus and it's moving his heart and it's moving it to compassion, which, by the way, is what happens when you pray, which is why the Bible tells us to pray incessantly, pray continually. God wants us to continue to be persistent in our prayers because those kinds of prayers moves God's heart, which is what's happening with Jesus and this woman right now. So in his love, he's feeling compassion towards the woman, but in his love, he's feeling irritation, even anger towards his disciples. She needs to be helped by her daughter being healed. But those guys need to be helped too. They need to be educated. Their attitude needs to change. Their heart needs to change. These guys are full-blown racists. And Jesus can't have racists being the bearers of the gospel that's going to go to the whole world. All ethnicities. It can't start from a place of racism. These guys got to change. So what is she going to do with the sentiment that Jesus only came for the Jews? 
And the disciples are just playing right into it going, yeah, yeah, he only came for us. So Jesus, the master teacher, he's just got everybody right where he wants them, right in the palm of his hand. Brilliant. And so here's what she does after hearing that Jesus didn't come for her, but only for the disciples and their kind. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. She pushes closer into this. Lord, help me, she said. Love this passion, this endurance of hers. She ain't quitting. Her concern for her daughter was so deep and her confidence in Jesus so strong that she falls before him, probably is touching him now at his feet, at his legs, and begging him. She isn't buying it. She isn't giving up. I came only for the Jews. And she's going, no, you didn't. Or if you did, change your mind. I need you to help me. I need you to help my daughter. I think God likes this kind of persistence in people. Now, this is a pitiful scene. She's been loudly carrying on. Now she's on her knees in front of Jesus. Lots of people are watching this interaction. Disciples are irritated and befuddled and even embarrassed. What's he going to do? Is he going to help her now? I mean, this Canaanite crazy woman at his feet? Well, not yet, because he's still teaching, still testing. And here's what he's doing. He's going, okay, guys, let's run this all the way out. Let's just, let's just run this, your attitude, your perception of people. Let's just run it all the way out and see what happens. Brings us to the third test. Verse 26, and the parable. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wait, what? Did did you just call me a dog? He did. He used a Greek word for little dogs, puppies. It's very patronizing. Uh, We know from history that the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. And dogs were not like our sweet dogs today. They were scavengers and despised almost as much as pigs. You need to understand that this word dog is a racial slur. This would be be their N-word. And Jesus utters it to her. Lady, my disciples need bread, and I am not going to take their bread and throw it to you, Gentile dogs. This test here is full-blown racism. So what is Jesus up to here? What's he doing? Well, you know, he's testing and he's teaching. He tests her by saying what his reputation already says about him, and that is that he's only here to help his own kind, his own ethnicity. But he's also teaching. And he's teaching his disciples by, in effect, saying, okay, guys, let's run this all the way out. You want me to get rid of this woman, and you want me only to yourself. You want me to look down on her because she's a woman. You want me to limit my ministry and my activity to the Jews only. And definitely not the Canaanites. Okay, fellas, let's follow your theological, gender, and racial biases to their logical conclusion. Because you guys know that I can meet this lady's need. You've seen me do it. 
but your theology and your ethnocentrism and your racism require me to get rid of her. Okay, let's do that because that's good for the community, right? That brings shalom to people. Let's get rid of her. Okay, let's, let's observe the response uh, to this unclean, wailing woman. You ready, guys? Okay, guys, watch this. Hey, lady, you are bugging us, and it's going to do you no good. Because I didn't come here for you guys, for your type, for the dogs. I came for these guys. And I've got food for my people, but frankly, I only got so much to go around. So I'm certainly not going to throw some bread to you Gentile dogs. Now, when he says that, it's consistent with the attitude of the day. It's consistent with the upbringing of these disciples. But it sounds horrible in the face of a desperate pleading woman, doesn't it? See, guys, it's shocking when your prejudices is on display. But here's what's happened to you. You've kept your prejudices inside. Your own racism. And the best thing that could happen to you is that it gets exposed. Because when you see it, it's ugly. Riley Cooper. Anybody? Ring a bell? Riley Cooper is a wide receiver in the NFL. He's white. A couple of years ago, was caught on camera saying violent things and ushering racial slurs, the N-word. Goes viral. Now, this isn't very smart. It's a white wide receiver in the NFL. His, most of his team is black. This is a terrible mistake. And the best thing that could have ever happened to him because when he saw it, he was horrified. And he, what was exposed to him is the ugliness and corruption in his own heart and soul that would even cause him to say that word. And, and this, these are his friends. NFL disciplines him, so does the team. He goes through a bunch of sensitivity training, all that stuff. It was actually really, really good for him. Because he learned some things that we could all benefit from as we learn about our own prejudices, our own exclusivity. When you see it happen, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. When you see it happen, it's ugly. And that's what Jesus is doing with these disciples, showing them how ugly their attitude is. So guys, you think the Gentiles are dogs and you want, them, want me to treat them as such? Well, here's where your biases lead. You comfortable with this scene? Let's see, she's at my feet. What should I do? Maybe kick her? Or how about you guys put a chain around her neck and drag her out of here? You okay with that, fellas? Now who's got their tail between their legs, right? Now meanwhile, bless her heart. She's still just passing the test, man. Is she going to get offended? Verbally attack? Start a movement? Take to Twitter? What's she do after she's called a dog? Well, her love for her daughter and her confidence in Jesus' identity and compassion and his love for all people is so strong that she's just going to absorb this body blow 
She just absorbs this insult and presses on because again, the point is not her feelings. The point isn't even her own identity. The point is that her daughter is being ravaged by a demon and she wants her healed. So she'll take the body blow, just heal my daughter. And so she responds wisely and winsomely to Jesus. And by the way, this is a great example to anybody who's marginalized, anybody who is a victim of some form of exclusivity or prejudiceness. Look at what she does, verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She just takes the insult and then with a touch of humor turns this into a renewed request. She's saying, look, I know you Jews think that us Gentiles are just dogs. We're little puppies. Okay, so it is. That's fine. We're dogs. We deserve nothing. But then she says, but even the little puppies are thrown crumbs. Crumbs of bread after everybody has eaten their fill at the table. She's even saying, look, I know I'm not at the table. I'm a Gentile. I know I'm not at the table. But I also know there's enough of you to go around and I will take a crumb. Just a crumb. Because a crumb from the Messiah has more than enough power to heal my daughter. You are the master. You are the Lord. You are the savior. And I am just a dog under your table. But I know you can heal. And I know you have compassion. And I know you have an inexhaustible supply. Could you just throw me a crumb? Just a crumb. Heal my daughter. Beautifully passes the test. Jesus knew she would. Matter of fact, she graduates the top of her class. Now the disciples are still getting schooled. Verse 28, then Jesus said to her, woman, that's a term of endearment, you have great faith, your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. The gospel writer Mark says that Jesus says such an answer or what an answer, wonderful answer, that kind of a response to her. Jesus is so excited, so proud of her. Now the disciples are totally speechless. This is the speechlessness that happens in a moment of deep and profound learning because never have they seen such faith in the midst of so many hard words. Never have they seen such confidence in Jesus. Never have they seen such compassion pouring out of him. And never would they have imagined and never will they actually forget where their biases and prejudices and theological arrogance would lead. It would lead to a human rights disaster, a human rights disaster for the whole town. Alas, a global disaster if it was left to go unchecked, if everyone thought and behaved like they did, especially Christians, Christians. Jesus is just brilliant in this interchange, in this tiny little parable. She passes the test. She endured. She didn't fight him over it. She just was like, whatever it takes. She's just loving her daughter. She had the right priorities. She passes the test. The disciples get an education because this is a critical event in their life. Because Jesus is preparing these guys to love the entire world. And you know the rest of the story. It worked. Because the disciples, these mean little racist guys, become the greatest advocates for human rights, social justice, and the love of God in history literally changed the world and gave the entire world a new paradigm to think about people. It was on that that the early church was founded. 
And it happened because of one little obscure one-verse parable. And yet, here we are, guys, 2016. And racism is still a problem. And arguably worse. What's that show you? That shows you that the solution is not political. It ain't even human. The solution is Jesus. And learning to see people the way Jesus sees people as, you ready for this? People. People. Dearly loved, deeply respected people. Souls that God created and Jesus died for. That's the solution. It starts here. With an obscure one sentence provocative parable to test us and teach us that in Christianity there is no room for exclusivity and racism. Imagine what kind of community that Bozeman would be if Christians would just take crumbs from the master's table and prepare a feast of love and acceptance and blessing for all people, it would change the valley. Now, the Bible is curt. In other words, we only have a little bit of Jesus' life. Lots of details are left out. So at the end of this parable, it just kind of moves on to the next thing. Do you wonder what happens to this lady? This real person. So I will tell you what I think happened. I don't have any particular insight to this. In other words, I, I wasn't there. And the Bible doesn't say. But I'm right. But <laughs> this is what I think happened. Based on the character of Jesus and the weight of the New Testament teaching about people. And about God. This little interchange happens. And Jesus tells her that her, her daughter is healed. So she's going home, right? So she gets up and she bails out of the room, wherever they were at. I think Jesus got up. I think he got up and I think he followed her and got outside and said, Hey, 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 ma'am, ma'am. And she stopped. And I think he walked up to her and he put his hands on her shoulders tenderly. She's short. She's right here. <laughs> and I think he said something like this to her. Hey, I want to say thank you. Because these blockheads, okay, they're my disciples and they're going to change the world. But they ain't ready. And I, I had to teach them some stuff and show them some things some stuff about their own corrupt heart and the way they think about people. And so you helped me with that and I want to thank you. Because here's what's going to happen. In about seven months, next Passover, I'm going to get arrested and tried unjustly and they're going to torture me and murder me on a cross. But that is God's plan because that death is going to be for the sins of the world, yours and even theirs. And theirs is a bunch. And then I'm done down here. 
and I am passing my mantle, I am passing my mission for the world to these guys, and these guys are gonna take my message to the whole world, but they ain't ready, and that's why you and I needed to have this interchange so that they could see the ugliness of their own sin and, in, and injustice and racism so that they would repent and be healed so that they would then be qualified to take my message into the world, and that's what you just accomplished with me here today, and I wanna thank you for that. And then I think he said to her, and you are not a dog. You are not a dog. You are a delightful, sweet, precious daughter of God. And you are loved and cherished. And I will see you in heaven someday. Okay, now go home and see that little girl. Don't you think? That's a Jesus who loves all people. And so shall we. Amen? All right, let us pray. I'm going to give you a moment to uh, interact um, over this uh, with the Lord. So whatever uh, you might be thinking about, you might need to do some apologizing, ask for help. Maybe it's expressions of gratitude. Uh, But you just get to pray for a few moments. Then I'll interrupt you here in a minute and we'll see if Jesus is saving people today. If you're not a Christian yet, we're gonna give you an opportunity here in just a few moments. But right now you talk to God. Would you uh, just hang in that posture of prayer for a moment? Uh, Maybe there's um, some here today that um, you actually have been waiting for that perspective of Jesus, for you to be convinced that he is exactly who he said he is, that he really is the son of God, really does love you, really did die for you, really does want to forgive you and have a relationship with you. And if you've never committed your life to him, to believing in him and following him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now, to become a Christian, as we say. And nobody's born a Christian. You're, you're born into a nation and an ethnicity, but nobody's born a Christian. It happens to you. And it starts with an admission of your need of God in humility and particularly because of your own sinfulness. And so, would you just tell God right now that you're sorry for your sins? And you could name a couple or you could talk about it just in general. And it might even have to do with your own prejudices and racism. But... Just humbly tell God you're sorry. Now, Jesus knows that stuff about you already. And in spite of that, and really because of that, and his love for you, he was willing to be tortured and murdered for the sins of humanity that includes yours. And so a person who is a Christian is one who believes that Jesus died for their sins, for the guilt of their sins, that he took that punishment on himself. And so you could tell him right now that you believe that he loves you and died for you. And you could thank him for that. And now tell him that you are putting your trust in him, your faith in him. You're taking your trust off of whatever it's been on and you're going to put it on Christ. In other words, you're giving him your life. Tell him that's what you're doing. And receive from him his gift of eternal life and forgiveness and acceptance and love. Receive it from him. He wants you to have it. As you in turn give your life to him. 
this transaction happens, that's when a moment when a person becomes a Christian. And I'm just gonna ask you to keep your heads down for a moment because this is personal, but it's also helpful if a person gets to acknowledge that this is happening to them today. And so if you just prayed those things just now, becoming a Christian, giving your life to Christ, would you put a hand up in the air for me, please? And this will just be helpful for you. And I'd like you to look me in the eye if you get your hand up, because I want to look at you and go, yeah, man, good job. Congratulations. Welcome to God's family and you too, young man. Good for you. Welcome to the forgiveness that God has for you, sir. I'm so happy for you. Good job, guys. Yep, way to go, my man. And you are experiencing right now God's forgiveness and his love and his acceptance of you, and he is washing away the sins that you've committed and you are free from that now and all of that guilt and he has plans for you to be a blessing to the world that's why he's blessing you now with his very presence and heaven rejoices and it's really quite emotional so good job you guys then lord i pray um well i pray for new christians lord and just celebrating that right now that they would know very early on here how much you love and care for them and how authentic and real this moment is. Jesus, how graceful, merciful, and kind you are to us. We are no different than those disciples, God. How we just say and think stupid things. You just love us and keep teaching us, so thank you for teaching us again today, and I pray that you would then trust us with the gospel, that we would bear it well and share it freely in the world without exclusivity, with no prejudice, that we would be Christ-like. We pray these things in his name. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information, or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.